0: That's in the air, this could the air, Jarvis oh, underneath it, will he catch it, he's got good hands, he's got him, yet he has, Jarvis got, it. got him in the deep, having fumbled all night, he's taken the big one, and when now, now in the air, that was a good catch. Couch Talk Hello and welcome to Couch Talk, the guest today is Daniel Grittig, assistant editor at Eastman Cricket Film, he talks about his recent book, Whitewash to Whitewash, and some yes. of the leading characters in it, including Michael Clark and James Sutherland the Game of word Association. Welcome to the show, Daniel. Thank you, mate. Uh, congratulations on a wonderful book, Whitewash to Whitewash. It's an absolute ripper. Why did you choose those two time points uh, to provide the narrative from the 2006-07 Nash's Whitewash to the 13-14 Whitewash?
1: Well, I'd really thought about doing a book of this kind for a long time. I actually mentioned in the acknowledgements that I'd been... Uh, inspired by a couple of books by Mark Gray and Malcolm Knox, Border and Beyond and Taylor and Beyond. And those books were um, uh, a similar exercise to what I've done, journalistic accounts of, of a period in Australian cricket. And so I looked at those books and really got a lot out of them, um, Is even as a, as a teenager, I think it was the first time I read Border and Beyond, and felt like that was something I'd love to... I'd love to attempt, but I was also looking for a, a narrative period that would work. Mm-hmm. So um, when the uh, second ashes whitewash took place in uh, January of two thousand and fourteen, that got me thinking, well, this story has a beginning, a middle, and an end, mm-hmm. and i can uh, I can work off that. So while I was in South Africa on the uh, on the tour that followed the ashes uh, that's when i really started seriously thinking about pitching it to a publisher mm-hmm. and uh, and went on from there so i was really looking for uh, yeah i was looking for a natural narrative arc so that i didn't necessarily have to i suppose um uh foist uh, one on events um so that the book could uh, yeah the book could feel uh, relatively natural in terms of its progression
0: I mean, uh, the book has so much information. Even for people that may have followed Australian cricket and world cricket very closely from two thousand seven to fourteen, there are still nuggets of information that you never knew existed. You know, you had worked as a correspondent with Australian Associated Press before joining ESPN Cricket Info. How much of that working with AAP help and the other journalistic outlets? Help you in getting the insider information on the team and understand the inner workings of the team?
1: One of the things that I've gathered, or certainly I gathered while I was doing the book, and I'd heard this said to me by a number of authors when, you, when you're doing a project of this kind, is that you're in, in, in going to people and saying, I'm going to do this, uh, I'm going to attempt to write this book or do this project. You really need—you—you you can't necessarily just stand on what you're telling them. You have to stand on what you've done in the past and what your—I suppose your—your your track record is as a journalist. Mm-hmm. And I feel as though not only the fact that I was covering Australian cricket during that period, but also covering it, I guess, in a certain way. Mm-hmm. Uh, In—in that you know, the guys that I interviewed knew that I was always looking for—I was looking for detail, but I wasn't necessarily looking for. Uh, I suppose, yeah. the screaming red top, red top headlines, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that made people a bit more comfortable with the idea that uh, I wouldn't necessarily write a book that they would all universally agree with, but I'd at least try to write an account that had an element of balance to it and tried to look at things from a few different perspectives. And the other thing about, um, I suppose, the fact that the book has got in quite a bit of information in there that's not seen the light of day before, you know, when it got to when it got to um, the time when I was researching, uh, you know, these were the questions that I had. These were the things that I didn't know in mm. a lot of cases. And there's there's not a lot in the book that I knew of prior to my going into mm. researching it that I'd sort of been sitting on. It was more a case of going back to people and saying, you know, what about this? What about this? In a lot more depth that you can than you can manage in daily journalism. I see. I see.
0: Um, when how much of a project like this where you're still an active journalist and you're writing about some of the players and the officials that you're writing about are still in position of power and still have a very long uh, career ahead of them, both domestic and international. Um, How do you navigate through that? Because you still have to, you know, after the book is published, you still have to carry out your job as a journalist, so you don't want to burn your bridges as well.
1: Yeah, I... To to a certain degree, I'm I'm going to uh, to have to wait and see how that uh, how that plays <laughs> out. Things have gone well so far, but uh, you know, uh, not uh, not going to uh, count my chickens. Uh, but one of the things about it that I did have to do occasionally, as you would have noticed, was uh, you know uh, quote people or mention people without naming them, mm. and that that was a big. That was a big factor in uh, in trying to be sensitive to to people who still have roles within cricket or within Australian cricket, and uh, you know allowing the story to be told, frankly, without necessarily putting them in a in an invidious position. Hmm. Uh, and that you know whether I was quoting them by name or not was was a was a judgment call that I had to make on on an individual basis. And also uh, when I was dealing with Cricket Australia, uh, their preference was that in terms of my uh, interviews with current figures, i.e. A James Sutherland or uh, uh, a Michael Clark or Wally Edwards, yeah, guys like that, uh, their preference was that I, uh, or Gavin Doby or Alex Contouris, was that I didn't quote them directly. Uh, and I was happy with that because I wanted... I wanted their honesty rather than, I suppose, the, uh, views that they would have expressed in a, say, a press conference situation, Hmm. for instance. Not to say that they're dishonest in that situation, but Hmm. to say that they, uh, are, they're conscious of the cameras as much as they're conscious of, uh, of what their frankest memories are of an event.
0: And of course they'll be a bit more guarded as well when, yeah. Um, of course, you know, the two of the, um, big controversial uh, situations in that seven-year period was the Monkey Gate and the Homework Gate. Um, And they're covered in quite a bit of detail. And, you know, I thought uh, the origins of the Monkey Gate controversy uh, was quite interesting and probably escaped a lot of uh, cricket viewers' attention. I'll let the uh, listeners read the book and find out without giving too much away. But, you know, that was just an example. Some of the passages passages in the book, such as uh, the teleconferences between the selectors, members of the board, etc., it is it's written as if you were actually present there, you know. Um, uh, From memory, I can say that, you know, there was a collective sigh um, in the meeting. Uh, You know, how did you go about getting those details in the book?
1: Well, it really was a case of uh, quite, I suppose, granular interviewing of people, hmm. going going to them once, going to them twice, going to them a third time, uh, trying to corroborate details, trying to uh, establish um, exactly what had happened to the best recollection of a number of people, uh, and also uh, portraying those events in a way that was going to be engaging to the reader, obviously. So, uh, you know, the... Um, yeah the the board telephone hookup uh, was something that uh, yeah it's it's not it's not a very common thing to be able to to describe something like that in the amount of detail that I did, mm-hmm. but in some cases, what I was able to do was you know speak to one or two people, get nuggets of information, then go to other people who might not have been that forthcoming if I'd gone to them with nothing mm-hmm. but because I had information to begin with they were then more willing to allow me to expand on that with their recollections. That's and that's nice. sort of how you do, you know, it's like you're building a, building a pyramid, as it were.
0: Hmm. Um, th- this, we talked about the process of writing the book. I want to talk about the characters in the book um, and some of the events, too. Um, and Michael Clark is a central figure in the book, obviously, forming the link between that great team of 2007 and now, of course, as captain of the team and a lot of good and bad things as have happened around him and because of him. How would you characterize him as a player, teammate, and a captain based on all your
1: research and the interviews that you've done? I think Michael is someone who one reason, one major reason, that, for instance, that Michael is close to Shane Warne is that they've both felt... Uh, They've both felt maybe a little bit misrepresented in terms of the public perception. Mm. Um, although I think a difference between Shane Warne and Michael Clarke is that Michael has uh, has tried to present a public face that's not always the same as his as his private one, whereas I tend to think Shane Warne is uh, is reasonably uh, what you see is what you get. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Michael was someone who. As a cricketer who was in the system at a very young age and it was very clear that he was going to be a professional cricketer from a very young age, I think he was lacking maybe a little bit of, uh, of a range of life experience and a range of uh, uh, empathy, for lack of a better word, for, uh, for others at times. Mm-hmm. And, it, and, that's, and that's a product, I think, of the um, uh, hermetically sealed world yeah. of Of international cricket these days and and of professional sport, and I think you see examples of that in in a number of other other sports as opposed to someone who, for instance uh, finished high school, went to university, played club cricket yeah. and then found themselves playing at a high level a little bit later in their in their career and that still occasionally happens in cricket yeah. but I think that michael 's um, background there was was a was a big factor, uh, but I also think that he was at times unfairly, uh, unfairly maligned for reasons that were quite peripheral to cricket. Mm. Uh, and, and the fact that there was a chance that he might've been lost as a captain of Australia for the fact that, uh, you know, his public image was seen as a problem. His, uh, uh, having different ideas on the way the Australian cricket team should celebrate wins, that kind of thing, I, I found that uh, a bit uh, a bit surprising when you line that up against his attributes on the field, and and that's uh, that was something that the Australian cricket team really needed from him uh, at the time that he became captain. And the key thing was always just to ensure, I think, that there were the right people around him to to counterbalance. His flaws, but also to allow him to emphasise his his strengths. And I think there's been times when he's had the right people around him and things have gone well. And there's other times when he hasn't and it hasn't gone quite as well. Hmm. As an outsider to Australian cricket, I was surprised to
0: you know you always believed that you know Michael Clarke was groomed to be the next captain of Australian cricket. Whenever uh, Ricky Ponting called it a day, Um, I was surprised to realise the opposition as you. Detail in the book to Clark's ascent to captaincy. Um, could you know? Because we always thought from the outside that you know it was just a matter of rubber stamping uh, Clark to become the next captain of Australia. Could you talk a bit about that?
1: I think part of the reason that there was opposition in early 2011 was that everyone felt it was a rubber stamp and uh, something that. Uh, I spoke to a number of the board members about, and I I agreed to a a certain extent, was, uh, you know, there needs to be debate about these decisions. You don't want these decisions to be made made lightly. Hmm. Equally, Ricky Ponting makes an excellent point in the book that uh, then why wasn't that debate being had earlier than my retirement, uh, or sorry, my resignation from captaincy? Uh, and I think that's uh, I think that's a that's a very uh, a very fair observation. Uh, but in terms of um, uh, in terms of the opposition, I think it was uh, it was intriguing to me that uh, there were views on the board, as in a position where there's a lot more knowledge that were quite similar to I suppose the views that were being held in the Australian public or maybe published in in. One or two Australian newspapers, mm-hmm. uh, particularly. Uh, well, one thing I mention is, is the opposition to to Michael Clark that was evident in the Daily Telegraph in Sydney. <laughs> uh, which, once Michael becomes captain, uh, I think I describe it as by way of crisis management, he becomes a columnist for the Daily Telegraph. Yeah. Almost, um, almost to, to neutralise that uh, that uh, that corner of dissent, as it were. So. I think the the uh, you know the, the board debate that was uh, that was had about it was uh, fair enough to have that debate but I agree with Ricky Ponting that if they were going to have it they needed to be having it before uh, before Ricky Ponting was about to resign
0: in reading the book uh, a couple of things stood out for me amongst a lot of other things actually um, one you know there was a bit of culling and you know selection dropping re- picked again, so on and so forth in the last seven years of a lot of younger, as well as older players. Um, And also you had the reforms from uh, the August review. Two people survived everything, basically. Shane Watson and James Sutherland. (laughs) How did that happen? I mean, obviously they ought to be uh, held responsible for some of the things. Of course, you know, Sutherland with the board and Watson with the team. Uh, but uh, they survived all of that. Uh, you know, your take on those two?
1: Starting with Shane Watson, I think his uh, survival, as you, as you put it, is largely based on two things, I think. One is he's the sort of player who's always swayed an observer who might see him for the first time and look at you know, how powerful he can be as a batsman look at his potential um, ability to turn a match as a a swing bowler Mm -hmm. and think, there's a talented cricketer, there's a player we need to persist with. Um, And the perception created by that initial viewing is something that is held on to very firmly by uh, cricket watchers, selectors, coaches, even if there's a great deal of inconsistency there or injury in, in Shane's case. So oh, I think okay. that's something that w- that's been in his favour versus I think uh, a, a contrast to that is provided by someone like Chris Rogers mm-hmm. who on first impression looks like a knicker and nudger and a struggler and it's only when you look over the arc of his career that yeah. you see that that method uh, actually works on a very consistent basis and uh, I think for a long time he wasn't considered in the team because he didn't look like he was a champion player, for instance.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, so I think that that's one reason why Shane Watson has, uh, has been persisted with over, over time uh, regarding James Sutherland. I think, uh, he, one of the things that I, I found fascinating about, about him over the period is that at different times he's engaged with different areas and perhaps disengaged from other mm-hmm. areas. And, uh, when things really get to well, things come to a to a head for him maybe three times I think in the in the course of the book in 2010 when the uh, Australian cricket conference happens and the start of board reform is uh, is mooted. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know that is a that is a time when uh, like historically in Australian cricket uh, there was the instance of uh, of Graham Halbish who was the CEO in the in the late or the uh, the late eighties to the late nineties, mm-hmm. uh, and when he got out of step with the board, uh, he was fired. And uh, so, for James Sutherland to um, to approve of the program at the Australian Cricket Conference and the sort of reform that was being advocated by management figures towards board figures, mm-hmm. uh, he was putting his job at risk uh, by doing that. So that's one one time. Another time. Is after the 2010-11 Ashes, and uh, you know the 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 uh, formulation of the Argus review and all of the changes that uh, that occurred. Uh, it was you know the the inclusion of the of the line from one of the interviewees that "Why are you in the room? You you you're one of the people who needs to needs to go." Yeah, uh, that was representative of the views of of a number of people in Australian cricket at the time, and I think. Uh, uh, yeah, it was it was certainly um, it was certainly a point in time where had had James not uh, not responded to the to the situation that uh, that the team and the uh, and Australian cricket wider found itself in, then he would have been in in trouble. And the third time is twenty thirteen. Um, yeah. The India, yeah. the uh, homework gate issues, and also uh, the Champions Trophy. Dave Warner and Joe Root, and, and the way that the Pat Howard, Mickey Arthur, Michael Mm -hmm. Clarke leadership was going. Um, Of course, all people who, uh, well, Pat Howard and Mickey Arthur in particular, who'd been selected uh, in a process out of the Argus Review that uh, James had a lot to to do with. And interestingly enough, when I talk about his engagement with various issues, he doesn't engage with what's happening with the team in India very Quickly, or as immediately as uh, as it might have been expected, because he was involved in the TV rights yeah. discussions that were going on, which was a you know very important deal. So uh, once that had been um, drawn, or once a line had been drawn under that, he was able to um, uh, to concentrate a bit more on on whether or not things were, were going well for the team, and then I think you see him being, as I say, a lot more engaged and a lot more. A lot more direct, and uh, obviously, as uh, as is now the um, uh, the popular uh, popular view, and I think the right view, uh, uh, the circumstances which uh, Darren Lehman was made coach weren't ideal, but uh, he proved in the end to be the right man.
0: Uh, you know, in the last at least seven eight years, um, you know, Australian cricket it's, it's been focused on packaging cricket and the public image perception, and of course, as you mentioned, the media rights a uh, lot more over the uh, performance of the national team itself and the health of the uh, grassroots game. You know, now, as you mentioned, with uh, Lehman in charge, uh, there is, of course, uh, reversal in fortunes of the team on the field. But would you say a lot of the same problems still remain in terms of um, an interrupted Shield season, poor scheduling, too much focus on T20, you know, with uh, BBL and IPL and Champions League and all those stuff?
1: One thing that has happened uh, on a recurring basis, obviously, is the issues around the Champions League at the start of the season, and I think that's been, that's been a very difficult uh, thing for Australian cricket medical and fitness staff mm-hmm. to deal with. The fact that they are, as a rule, trying to um, equip players physically for a long season and, and for long-form matches... In particular, mm. and then to find the Champions League happening in the middle of that like the, the first edition of the Champions League had an extraordinary effect on um, the fitness of fast bowlers so, uh, there was something like every Australian fast bowler who played in the first edition of the Champions League had a serious injury yes. at some point in the season that followed so that was a that was a, a very difficult thing for um, for people to cope with. And I can remember, it's not actually in the book, but I can remember interviewing Pat Howard in 2012. And he said that, you know, the the balance between 2020 and long form cricket is something that every country is struggling with. And it, it's going to take, you know, it's going to take five, 10 years for, uh, for people to, um, to get their heads around the best way to navigate through that. Um, I think Australian cricket as it stands at the moment has got the balance close to, Close to right. I think the Big Bash League could be a bit tighter. Um, I think the uh, the Shield season is a little bit too marginalised, but I believe that those are things that can be further tweaked. I don't personally believe that the summer schedule needs to be overturned mm. because I I do agree with the idea of the Big Bash League being held during school holiday period, for instance. Uh, I think that was I think that was eminently sensible. So, yeah, it's a it's a it's a difficult puzzle, mm-hmm. um, and I think uh, other countries are probably now looking towards Australia in terms of the way that Australia have tried to, to strike a balance there. Certainly, uh, England in particular are now you know mulling over whether they go to a 2020 franchise system. Yeah. And uh, funnily enough, I, I'm not sure if you would agree, but I, I think that uh, in... Uh, and I've said this to Cricket Australia a few times. I think in, in India, one of the advantages that, uh, that he's had there is that the Ranji Trophy has its, uh, has its window very separate to the IPL.
0: Yeah, I mean, um, and that's... Uh, I think it's just a coincidence. I don't think it was planned. It just so happened. I mean, and plus the IPL, they're playing at basically doing the hottest part of the year. But the fact that you can play in the evening kind of mitigates that. But, yeah, basically that was the only window that was open for them to uh, play without, Mm. you know, getting too far into June and July. So, they got lucked out, I would say, rather than planned that way. But, Yeah.
1: Sometimes you're lucky. (laughs)
0: Um, I want to let you go, but first I want to play a little game of uh, word association. So I'm going to give you names of various people that have been involved in Australian cricket, players, officials uh, in the last seven years that are covered in the book, and you can tell me the first thing that comes to your mind. Sure. Right? Let's uh, start with Andrew Simons. Hard done by. Ricky Ponting. Loyal. Andrew Andrew Hilditch. Ooh. Misguided. Shane Watson. Potential. Shane Warne.
1: Influential.
0: John Buchanan. Ahead of his time. Mickey Arthur. Nice guy. George
1: Bailey. Nicer guy.
0: Michael Clark. Tactician. James Sutherland. Conservative. And finally, Mitchell Johnson. Explosive. Fantastic. Um, so, could you tell the listeners where they can get the book?
1: Whitewash to Whitewash is published by Penguin. And is out in bookstores in physical form in Australia and New Zealand. We're still working on rights for overseas markets. But if you're overseas, your best chance to get it will be to go to Amazon and get the ebook for your Kindle.
0: Excellent, Daniel. Thank you so much for being on the show and uh, phenomenal. That's Thank
1: in you. the air. This could be a Thanks a